Episode 64 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is a group chat with Evie Casagrande, Erica Suter and Julia Eyre. I'm going to keep this intro very short because this is a long podcast, but we covered loads of different areas from coaching female players, video feedback, the importance of strength. We went deep into coach health and then we also covered who the girls would want round for dinner if they had to pick two coaches and two other people. So it was great to speak to him. Obviously, Evie and Erica have been on the show before, but it was great to catch up with Julia. They all put out some amazing work, so go and check them out. And the only other thing to mention is we are going to do a giveaway of our Youth Soccer Strength, our brand new ebook. So between this show, so episode 64 and episode 65, we're going to run it until the 26th of Feb. If you leave us an iTunes review, you will enter the draw for a free copy of our ebook. So head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review with a short comment on your favorite guest, favorite subjects, and that'll put you in the draw with a chance of winning a free copy of our brand new Youth Soccer Strength ebook. Like I said, I'm going to keep the intro short, so I'm going to dive into the episode now. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to episode 64 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm delighted today. We've got a big group podcast. It's the first of its kind on this on this podcast. We've got three amazing guests, two of which that have been on the podcast before. So we've got Erica and Evie. So from episode six with Erica and episode 42 with Evie. And I'm also delighted to welcome a brand new guest, Julia Eyre. Julia, thank you very much for coming on. Ben, thank you so much for saying my last name right. <laughs> get it right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, awesome. awesome. That's good. I'm, I'm normally a, a pro in butchering names, so I'm, I'm pleased I got it right. I always knew that being adopted by Brits would pay off eventually. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just mentioning then, obviously, we've got some of the footballing powers of the world on this episode. So yourself, Julia, over in Germany, Erica over in the, um, in the States, and Evie originally from Brazil. So, and, and obviously England with myself. So we're, we're, we're conquering here, aren't we? <laughs> we got it covered. That's it. So, Julia, just start us off. Obviously, Erica and Evie have been on the podcast before. We've gone into their background in those uh, previous episodes. So if any of the guys want to check out what they've been up to um, and what they've done previously, they can go and check out those those episodes, and I'll put the link in the podcast notes. But yourself, Julia, where have you been? And take us up to current day. What are you up to? Yeah, so I guess I'll start current day and work my way backwards. I am currently a psychophysiologist, which means I'm a sports scientist and a sports psychology expert. I um, studied and played in the United States. I worked at the collegiate level, uh, NCAA Division One at George Mason University, where I bachelored my way up. And then I moved back to Germany and have since then been working at the German Sport University in Cologne, Germany, getting my master's and doing some other things, popping around there. And I research essentially competitive stress in athletes and the psychophysiology of that. That is how stress affects how we move, how we think, etc. And I work as, like I said, a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach, depending on the day, and as a sports psychology expert. So it's a fun time. Lots of things to discuss and bring to the table. Amazing. Awesome. And I know I said we won't go into the background of, of Evie and Erica, but 
do you want to just give us what you're up to at the moment, just to give us a brief update? So, Erica, what, what's going on in your world at the moment? Yeah, so I'm still doing uh, youth strength and conditioning in Baltimore, Maryland. I don't work for a specific club. I train all kids of all clubs in the state of Maryland and remotely across the world. And I do as young as age seven and as old as college. So it's it's been nice to still see the the process of long-term physical development blossom and it's it's great to be with these kids um through the length of their career so still still up to youth development out here awesome and then evie do you want to give us a, a little update where you're up to yeah sure ben uh first of all thanks so much for inviting us to this this is like an honor to be on the podcast with the three of you um, but right now I'm still at Orlando Pride. Uh, we are preparing um, to go to our preseason uh, in a month. So pretty busy getting everything right and uh, getting all the players ready for preseason. Um, I was also doing some work with U.S. soccer youth national teams. So doing some camps. I did a, a 17s and a 16s camp the past month. So that that's great because I still um, – I'm still able to do youth development at the same time as doing professional because I'm, I'm really passionate about youth development. So, um, so yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at uh, right now. It's just being really busy trying to get everything, everything together. Brilliant. And I think when, when I was thinking about this podcast and, and getting you guys together on at the same time, I think that the listeners have got to realize that I think you three coaches are putting out some amazing work and it's, it's really refreshing to see that how open you are with your work. There's not, I don't think there's many coaches that are so open and put so much information out. So I know we'll obviously reference some of the stuff that you guys have got going on throughout the, the podcast, but they do need to go and check out what you guys put out because it is quality. And there's not too many coaches out there that are so willing and open to share so, so much information. So thank you for that. So, so then I, I, I got to jump in really quick and say something to, to add to that. Um, the, one of the things that I really expect, to, expect respect about Erica and Evie and they have talked um, or the three of us have talked before about, we really hate the question about like, what's different about being a female coach um, that we just like, everybody wants to know that from a female coach. Cause we're kind of like the nuance in the room, for example. But I think what draws me to them as coaches specifically, and maybe this is a little bit more of, a female strength coach thing is like, there are no secrets between us. Like everything is fair game. If somebody wants to commit their energy to figuring out what we know, they could figure it out without us, without paying us. So there's no secrets. And they kind of operate under that assumption and think, okay, how can we take this really complicated thing and make it easy and specific and, and like adaptable, applicable to our players? Exactly. And that's where all the content comes from. Like they are just amazing content creators and coaches because they take really complicated stuff and say, how do I make this easy to, to access and kind of lower the threshold for, I mean, sports science is so absurdly complicated and we tend to make it really complicated in football. So I think there are really no greater coaches I would dare to say in the world um, at their jobs as strength coaches than these two, because they make really complicated shit make sense. That's awesome, Julia. Thank you, Julia. I think I think also like especially and we've talked about this before um, because the internet sometimes like and, and the Twitter world is it's getting kind of 
too much in terms of like people with really strong opinions. Um, and I think one thing with that, with sharing what we do, um, try to get as much as we can there. So it can help people out there. Look, some coaches that are still trying to figure out and we are all still trying to figure out, uh, but there's no right or wrong. Right. So people, I think lose, uh, the power of the, of context and yeah. people jump into conclusions, uh, seeing different videos and stuff. So I think the biggest Absolutely. thing when we put stuff out there, we try to get, uh, really, to, I, I, at least not to, and I think you guys do a great job of that. Try not to have like, this is the right, the, the thing that I think it's right or, or not, you know? So it's, it's just our context, our, our population, our athletes. And, and I think people need to understand the context of that. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. And, um, yeah, context is definitely so key and, it it really depends on your resources, what age, what level you're working with, or maybe their training age. And I like how Evie mentioned that there's no right or wrong. I think that's so true. In coaching, there's a million ways to do something. And you might be getting your team on a certain day and that's, that's the art of coaching. That's, that's adapting. So it's, you have your set philosophy, but also have to adapt the exercises you're doing or the movements or whatever it may be. Um, but I really think we can all get something from each other from, from sharing. I mean, I know I've used a lot of Ivy's drills, um, like her fun games and her reactive agility for some of my middle school athletes. So a lot of things can apply across the board. You just have to try it out yourself. And, and that's really the art of coaching at work. Yeah, definitely. I fully agree. And uh, I do encourage all the listeners to go and check out your work because I, I definitely agree there's some quality stuff going on and just how, how open you all are. So, yeah, fully agree with that. But I'm just going to put a question to um, – sorry, Erica, even. Let's start with yourself. When working with female athletes, obviously we'll have a lot of listeners that are working in, in the male game, but we'll also have some that are working in the female game as well. But what are some important considerations when working with female athletes? Um, I think the biggest thing is um, I think female athletes need us to listen more uh, to them. And not only listen, I think there's a big difference in listening and hearing, like actually hearing like, and making sure we, we understand what they come from um, and developing that relationship with them um and kind of seeing what works for them what doesn't work how can we meet them halfway and um i think with again we we go through stuff that a lot of men don't go through menstrual cycle one of them um so that's one thing that i think in my opinion um we don't need to be really uh, specific on what we do with like menstrual cycle data and stuff but i think just um knowing your players and knowing who on that team would kind of struggle more during the menstrual cycle and stuff like that. Those little things, I think uh, it's really important um, in, the, in the female world, to be honest. I think, Erica, I don't know if you agree with that. You can build on with it. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a, a good point physiologically with the the menstrual cycle. That's definitely something to be aware of and the fatigue during that week. And if 
players need to be pushed more, if they need to have more recovery. So that's definitely something to consider. I know Don Scott has done some amazing work uh, with the U.S. women's team on that. But I, I would also say just having empathy and just being there to listen and not talk as much because <laughs> I'll, I'll have a lot of female athletes come in and they'll be stressed with homework or maybe they broke up with a boyfriend or, you know, whatever it may be. These are all high schoolers, of course, and just listening and not, you know, not giving them unwanted advice. Oh, well, you need to like do this. No, just, they want to be heard and, and they want to feel heard. So I think empathy uh, for or female athletes is extremely important. Um, but I also think for male athletes too, uh, everyone just needs a, a little bit more empathy and be understood and be heard based on what's going on in their lives outside of the gym or off the pitch. What are the other stressors going on? We need to listen to those and then maybe change our approach that week or how we talk to them or what we're doing in training. Yeah, and I just uh, forgot to, uh, to mention that too. And I think um, Juliet put a lot of good stuff. She's been putting a lot of good videos on this, uh, the acceleration, landing mechanics and stuff because of the women anatomy, uh, female anatomy. I think that's something that we really need to pay attention. And, and that's something I do micro dosage in, in warm-ups, how to learn uh, them, to uh, how to teach them to decelerate, to control movement. I think a female athlete would would need even more just because of um you know the bigger tendency to get acl injuries and and just uh the female anatomy and being able to be really really specific on 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 the stability part the acceleration part um mm -hmm. and then from control to chaos kind of develop a, a good uh a good work with that i 100% agree with both of them i would say the difference for me in coaching male and female athletes is threefold. One, I try not to reduce any athlete to just a data point, but I find that with female athletes, there is so much behind each data point. Um, kind of like Evie said, um, in my experience, I work with the women's Bundesliga here, uh, a lot of individual athletes and all of my athletes take every day a survey or almost every day a survey so that I can see, you know, general load management stuff. Um, mood, amount of sleep, nutrition, pain versus discomfort, soreness, etc. Just to know their preparedness and readiness and how to plan it, etc. And they tend to overthink these numbers so much that I often get better results just going to ask them, especially if a number seems out of order, for their feedback. Like even a simple conversation starter like, hey, I noticed this was off in your survey. How are you feeling? I can get such better um, such better feedback from them, so much more specific feedback so that we can tailor the small things to fitting for them. And that can be really hard in a large team scenario, obviously, to tailor things to every individual athlete. But with female athletes, I found personally that they tend to overthink um, almost being reduced to a data point, like how should I answer this question on this rating scale that sometimes um, I need to be more, I need to be better as the sports scientist to go to them and say, hey, uh, can I get some feedback on, on this data point. How are you feeling? What can we do? What can we fix for you? And I get so much more information. I don't know what you guys would say about that. How do you ladies feel? Um, I, I mean, the only thing I would say is with like 
the young, younger population just realizing when they're they're hitting their growth spurt is a huge one so when girls are about like age 12 to 13 that's when they're starting to shoot up rapidly um whether that's they're they're getting taller or they're they're gaining more weight as they're hitting puberty and i think a lot of coaches tend to forget that and we see so much volume with like the running and the conditioning they're doing at their team practices and no one's taking into account maturity and anatomy and just general child development. So being aware of that. And um, again, coming back to what Ivy said, teaching deceleration and reacceleration during this critical period when girls are so much more vulnerable during the growth spurt, that's all huge. And and I think the the education is huge there too because a lot of the time uh, there's going to be a lack of confidence, uh, especially going to the growth spurt, right? Like not even for female athletes, but for for male athletes, uh, there's a lot of loss loss of coordination, um, and they might be slower. So if if there's they're in a program that are constantly doing like fitness tests or something like that, and they see that they you know their the movement is not as efficient as before or um, you have the pressure of the parents and the, some of the coaches. So kind of getting them to understand that that's normal and then it's a process and it's, gonna, it's not going to be always linear. Um, I think that's huge too, especially with growth spurt and, and players and, and development. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? And it, it, some of these points that you're raising, obviously – there's, there's some that don't relate to the men's game, but that a lot of it does as well. It's not about knowing your players, isn't it? And the relationships that you have with your players and or the players you're working with. And I think where you mentioned there about the data points, that's that's a real key one because a lot of I've spoken to a lot of coaches that talk about sports scientists getting really stuck in front of or behind laptops and really being focused on it and not having that relationship with players. And it's absolutely vital, isn't it, that we get that. So we we know our players and we know how to adapt our practice. Yeah, definitely. And I think for for people who are coaching and they're in the trenches, that's the best way to go about it. And sometimes you get your information quicker that way. And also it, it gives the athletes solace that you're you're paying attention to them and you care what's going on in their lives and you're there to adjust the workout based on how they're feeling. So that also builds trust. So there's a lot of win-wins going on with that, that way of doing things. I totally agree with that. And then on top of that point that Erica just made a lot of times, um, I work with more female athletes than I do male athletes and a lot of female players really want to understand how things work. And so when you get them in that one-on-one or small group situation where you're actually talking to them, where you're actually getting their feedback, a lot of times they want to know why we're doing something or how that works or what can I do to help this then or how does all of this tie together? And that in itself gets a lot of buy-in because now they kind of understand, obviously you make it like appropriate for them. We're not going to whip out the the essentials of strength and conditioning and explain energy systems. Right. But they, they do get some level of buy-in and confidence that, okay, this coach knows what they're doing. This makes sense. And now I'm going to give this my biggest effort because one, this coach listened to me Two, this coach cares about me. Three, this coach is competent. And four, there's a reason why we're doing this. If that makes sense. 
And Ben, I think you made a good point too uh, in talking about the sports sciences that a lot of coaches are are so stuck with the, the iPad and the technology, which has been so big. And I think we're sometimes we get lost in so much information. And I think there's a, a there's a loss in, in in the coaching eye. You know, a lot of a lot of coaches I see that they're not really attentive to the little details, uh, the analyzing movement and watching video, going back again, seeing what they can see when athletes are moving, not only in the weight room, but in the warm-up, you know, using warm-up as a assessment uh, time for, for coaches to see what's going on. And you can, you can like see so much in a, in a, in a warm-up, you know? Um, so I think I, I just came back from a, a week at Altus and, I learned so much and Dan Pfaff always, uh, always talks about uh, if he could, he could, he, he would start adding uh, how to analyze video and movement and into courses, into like master's programs and all that. Cause coaches really uh, underestimate the power of really analyzing movement, movement and being really attentive to the little things and assessing those things in movement and chaos, which is huge. If the, I, I absolutely love that. There's just a lack of having an eye nowadays. And I think you make such a great point that you have to just watch what your athletes are doing, whether that's warming up or in the weight room or how they're reacting in spontaneous agility drills. And you're maybe you're doing like slow motion capture on your, on your phone or you're, you're just watching the drill because you know them that well and you, you can tell when their movement's improving over a period of time. And yeah, I, I definitely think that's lost. And I, I think we can get, we can get lost in the numbers because as sports scientists and strength coaches, we want to quantify things. Um, but it's nice to have that qualitative evidence too. And you, you don't always need to, to get too fancy. I mean, I know there's a lot of technologies out there that show when players have like, maybe a, a left side imbalance or they're favoring their right side. But like, honestly, if you're a good coach, you can see that when your player's walking. It seems like a really obvious tool, doesn't it? To use the literally looking at your players and watching your players move. And it tells you a lot, doesn't it? Cause if you're doing a warm up and, and players are, are sluggish or they have a little hold of the hamstring or whatever it is. And, it tells you a lot. It tells you a lot about the story and what's going on with them. Um, and then all it takes is a conversation then to try and build that relationship and find out more of like the full picture, doesn't it? And I think the other thing is that we, in terms of like attitude, like players' attitude to things like warm-ups in terms of um, being, being very, uh, I've completely forgot the word, but be, being almost precise with the movement and putting the, putting the effort into what they're doing it. And that tells you a lot, not only about what physically is going on, but also mentally and emotionally as well, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think, I think that's the, the art of warming up, right? Uh, the, the art of warm up for a coach. And I think that's, a, I, for me, it's the, the fun part of the job is kind of creating warm ups that it's going to, they're going to engage your athletes. So if it's the same warm up over and over, they might get bored, but if you can really relate to what they do in the field and kind of build up from there, like, this is why we're doing lateral. Like what, what, what does that have to do with, with the defending some, uh, a player or something like that. And, um, 
having them really, really having an intention on each on each uh, part of the warm up, and that that comes with the education, right? It comes with kind of having a purpose and why why you do it. Um, so I think players uh, and athletes will really really appreciate us coaches kind of explaining to them a little because they they like to know about why we do certain things, you know. They do. And I love warmups because I really hate performance testing. I do it twice a year because we have to here in Germany for the most part, but I love using warmups almost like an impromptu performance test. Like you guys said, just screening basically for the day, readiness, preparedness, et cetera, keeps me away from the data points, keeps my eyes sharp and uh, it keeps the athletes on their toes. And I find a lot of the time the performance testing, especially with young athletes, they tend to get really stressed out knowing, Oh, I need to do my best because this data point and they they rate it as if it's so important kind of like we do in sports science um and a lot of times that can lead to performance decrement and that's simply not good so I can track their performance essentially like Evie and Erica were saying over time how well they're doing these movements how comfortable they are uh by adding them into the warm-up and maximizing time because I usually get players maybe twice a week for 45 minutes maybe so that 10-minute warm-up is a lot of time where I need to get a lot of stuff done so the warm-up is fantastic as a screening tool and as a, as a prep tool. Yeah. I really like that point, uh, Julia, in terms of the, the screening. It's something that I, I talked about a lot when I was with a previous club because I think there's so many factors that we don't consider when we're putting players through like a screening process. And it might be different for first teams because they might understand it a little bit more. But when we're doing it with youth athletes, it gets very confused, doesn't it? Like, the, like you said, the pressures that come from it, the fact that they have to give 100%, which sounds a, a bit daft, but like you, when you're doing a sprint test, it has to be a max sprint. And if you don't hit that, then the numbers, the numbers aren't right. So that was always something that I wasn't keen on from doing battery of tests. And I think you, you guys are spot on with what you're saying in terms of there needs to be continual monitoring, not just that one-off. And that might just be, to tick a certain box with the club that you have to do it at a certain time, which obviously we all might have to do. But at the same time as a practitioner and having real effect on performance, it should be continuous session after session. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's so valuable to constantly, you can do performance testing more than twice a year and to just keep keep reinforcing it, whether that's weekly or, or by weekly or every month just to ensure that your athletes are going as hard as they can. Um, I know here we, we test broad jumps every week and it's turned into this fun competitive thing that we, we do in our gym. And each time kids are working to get further and to stick their landing um, 10 yard, 20 yard sprints, we test almost weekly. And it's, it's nice because it, it kind of takes the pressure off and the, the kids just want to, compete against each other sometimes they want to compete against themselves and it's it's like really cool that they have that attitude and that competitive spirit but I found that when I used to do it just once a year it was like oh my gosh like everyone freak out um but continuously the the athletes appreciate it much more because they can see the trajectory of improvement over time Damn it, I wish I had that much time. <laughs> Come to Maryland. 
Yeah, seriously, <laughs> I've been moving to the States right now because I need time. It's, it's ridiculous. The time pressure is real. That's definitely an art of coaching as well. Yeah. And it's different in your space too, Julia, right? Girl, I think everything is different in my space. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I get them twice a week and strength and conditioning is pretty low on the ladder of things that they want to do, let alone mental training, that's like, if you need a hobby, your coach will maybe allow you to do mental training. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, we work on very limited time and have to maximize that. But I believe it's the same with my British colleagues. So um, the warm-up is great for a number of, of reasons, the screening included. I'm very dedicated to that. Yeah, it's definitely like that over here. I speak to a lot of coaches in academies, especially, um, and time is really precious. And in fact, a, a couple of episodes before this one with Ryan Devlin at Sheffield Wednesday, he was talking about that. And it's a case of looking at the program and you don't realise how busy these programmes are as well, not just with the training and the practical side of things, but all the education. Then you have to sort of fit into that programme and then what you do to fit into that program. So all the things that you have in your head that you could potentially work with these players might not fit. So it's a case of, of plugging the gaps, isn't it? And I just wanted to open up a bit of a, a debate on the, on tying into what we've been talking about here is how much do we need to coach our players in terms of practically in the sessions or in a warm-up in particular how much are you guys diving into the, to the session and correcting movement in that in that scenario? And who, I don't know who wants to take it first. Erica, do you want to start us off and then we can pass it on to the others? Yeah, sure. I actually had this debate last weekend when I was presenting in Kentucky, so that was fun. Um, <laughs> I think, it, I mean, it really depends on who you're working with. So w with my population, I'm I'm working with kids who are in a very vulnerable period of their lives and coordination is few and far between. So I, I do have to teach the skills of deceleration and acceleration and lateral speed and agility and linear speed and all these running mechanics. So I do have to get kids in the correct positions, um, whether that's um, for acceleration, learning how to drive their knees and, and be on the balls of their feet, how to extend their rear arm and how to have an aggressive arm swing, um, sprinting, how to create vertical force. So I absolutely have to teach all this stuff to these kids. And um, But what I found is a, a lot of kids who have been with me since age 10, age 11, and, and they've worked on things like coordination and their strength against their body weight and their balance, their speed and agility does not need to be taught as much because they already have the coordination going in. So it's, it, that stuff kind of cleans it up, but um, we're absolutely reinforcing running mechanics all the time with middle schoolers and high schoolers and, and with our college athletes. So I think there's, there should be a blend of both teaching the skills and the movements, um, but also having that, that gameplay and that spontaneity that you see in the game. So um, we do a lot of reactive sprints um, from just various cues, whether it's a, an audible cue, a visual cue, um, competing, uh, chasing. So they're, they're getting the instruction, but then they have to apply it in a way that's transferable to the game. Um, and I'm sure uh, Ivy and Julia, I mean, with 
older athletes, you still have to reinforce and, and maybe even reteach some of the basics of running and, and lateral speed. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you guys want to expound on that. Yeah, I think, I think in my, in my case, uh, with a professional athletes, um, well, when I was coaching youth athletes, I thought that Erica, you made a great point. You, you have to find a balance because, uh, you can't overcoach because you're going to lose a kid. Um, and same, same with professional, it's kind of the same thing. So you just got to find the balance. And with professional, it's even trickier because you see those players in the international level have been through World Cup. Uh, you know, we have uh, players that won the World Cup, won the, the, all those tournaments. And um, they are so successful. You don't want to change anything. Um, so where is the fine line where you're not changing their mechanics, but you're still kind of, uh, well, Dan Pfaff was talking about the virus. If you can, can find the viruses and, and their movement, you can maybe, um, solve other issues that they're having like biomechanically or even injuries wise. So it's kind of, it's a tricky place because you don't you definitely don't want to change their their mechanical communication with the athlete and saying like this I'm not changing your gait I, I don't want to do that I just I'm just being pointing like the different things that you can do to maybe be more efficient on the field so I use a lot of visual feedback and a lot of video um, where. I don't overcoach during a warm up and stuff, but I I do have that that slow motion video or videos from all my players that I can go at, at the end of a practice or um, and that's something that we're gonna uh, really start using. We're gonna have a, a visual like a video analysis room where I can come and, and open up the videos and kind of educate them. It's kind of like a classroom environment that it's it goes both ways where the athlete's learning from from it and I'm learning from the athlete in terms of their perspectives on that specific movement. Um, so using the video to show them and say, and saying, okay, this is how you can be more efficient on that change in direction. And once they see it, once they, they see the things, they're completely bought in because they, they know that that can change their game. So I think it's a fine line. It's a balance between both. Yeah, Ivy, I, um, I actually had that brought up last weekend in terms of working with professionals who are already fast they're already pretty efficient in their movement but you might see something in their movement like something small where where they can improve and is that something that that you change even though they're already like fast as hell and they, they've been getting away with it, but like maybe down the road, it might be a recipe for an injury. So I just want to know how you approach that because I, I can learn from you in this regard. Have you got that, Evie? I think, I think I lost everybody. Okay. Now I'm back, but I lost a little bit of the, the last part, Erica. Sorry. Yeah, yeah sure. It. Just how, how would you approach like an athlete who's already extremely fast, but you see something in their mechanics or their gait where it could be catastrophic. Like they might, it might be like a, a risk for a, an injury down the road as they get older in their career. How do you approach that when they're already like, Oh, well, I'm already fast. <laughs> 
yeah, I think it's all about the micro dosages again, you know, it's just kind of getting them uh, in the weight room. How can you like, I have a lot of athletes that have lower back problems. Um, and um, you can definitely see when, when they're running that they start compensating because of the pain and stuff. So how can I, and sometimes it, it, you, you talk to the player and say like, we're going to um, work some exercise to kind of help you out with that specific thing. Sometimes you just keep it to yourself. And, and I think that if I see something and then I think they need that, I just add, add a specific exercise to the prehab, uh, to their individual prehab. Or I, I kind of tell them, okay, can we work on this um, at the end of practice? Can we just work on some bungee stuff or anything that kind of um, can help them with that specific thing that just kind of me as a coach was able to, to see, maybe they don't, they don't see it. Um, but I think the micro dosage of, of the little things really helps. Um, and that's how you're, you know, how you can be creative. And I think it's all about on how you, you talk to them. If you talk to them about it, it's just like, I'm not trying to change anything. I'm just trying to uh, build you more resilience and, and, you know, kind of protect you from, from whatever. So I think that's, that's huge. And I think the coach, the, the art of coaching is all about solving the puzzle, isn't it? It's just kind of getting um, things from your assessments, getting things from your assessments in the warm up, getting things from assessment with the athletic trainer in terms of hip mobility, the, the angles of the internal rotation, external rotation, and kind of putting everything together. And it, it will make sense at the end that it's like, oh, that makes sense. I know now that why they they complain so much of uh, hip flexor tightness and. So it's all about kind of how to solve the puzzle and how to how do you really affect those things in a in a limited time that you have with them. I couldn't agree more with what Evie said, especially about working with my pros. Um, what I'm trying to do most of the time is slow things down. Like people want the quick fixes, especially the coaches, especially the managers. We want things to move quickly, but especially when we're fixing things with professional athletes, like. Um, small, small biomechanical changes in sprint, or I have athletes right now who have absolute, like the poorest heel recovery I've ever seen in my life because we're having to essentially relearn how to run after injury and, you know, barely able to use muscular power in the sprint and acceleration is really poor. And it's just fascinating. And I try to go as slowly as possible, not overcomplicate things and just give one cue, just try and work on one specific thing per session, because I find that they tend to get frustrated if I'm trying to fit, fix multiple things at once. And obviously the nervous system and the brain can't really process that much that fast. And we essentially lose all of our progress or make very little progress in a session. So to really use each session, move slowly and try and fix, just like narrow in on one thing, give one or two cues and let them work themselves out with it and give them enough reps to actually work it out as opposed to me jumping in after every single rep and be like, no, 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 no let's try this. Let's try this. You know, the brain and the body, they just get overwhelmed. The nervous system says, Oh hell no, I'm going to just protect myself and not change anything. Just go back to what I've been doing before and coping essentially in the body, just slowing it down and just doing one thing at a time. They are pros and they are really defensive about how they move. So that's been my best approach thus far. It's definitely trying to find that balance, isn't it? Between undercoaching and overcoaching. It's a time and from experience, you know when to step in, you know when to cue that athlete or that player and 
that only comes with watching, I'm sure you guys will probably say hundreds, if not thousands of, of players um, that you've worked with so far. I'm going to stoke the fire a little bit now because I'm going to open up a topic that I know you're all pretty passionate about. So in terms of, you, you've mentioned there uh, uh, briefly with stre- um, relating to strength training. So the, and we're going to touch on the importance of strength training for football or soccer players. Now, this has been raised a lot over over in the UK, and I know it's been a topic that's been um, talked about over in the States as well. There's players over here like Dharma Traore that a lot of people are talking about at the moment. He's come out and said that he doesn't lift weights, but then you look at how powerful and how fast he is, like he's producing a hell of a lot of force. So do we need to lift weight? Do we need to lift weight? Do we can we get away with body weight? And what are your views? What how should players prepare themselves? Who who wants to take that? Should we go, Julia? Do you want to take that first? I don't. Erica's um, the most passionate person about this, so I think you should start with her and come back to me. <laughs> All right, I got it. Um, so first thing for like professional athletes who we know who don't lift weights. I know Ronaldo's one of them. But he's extremely fast. He's powerful. He has a ridiculous vertical jump. Great. But the rest of us don't have good genes. So we can't go off of like the 0.1% here. Um, Even beyond that, there's so much research that supports that having more strength, especially eccentrically, reduces chance of injury. So yeah. Yes, a player may be fast, they may be performing at a high level, but then I ask the question, well, how long will they be able to stay in the game if they're not taking care of their strength? And then another thing, um, I mean, I know the the football audience always says this, but they're like, well, soccer is a game with the ball. But then I come back with, well, how, what percentage of the game do you have the ball at your feet? So it's not a lot. It's pro- I think it's like less than 5%. So that's a lot of actions off the ball, a lot of physical actions that are dynamic, explosive, um, change of direction, acceleration, curved running. Um, So we also can't ignore that because there's loads of research that also supports that strength and power training improves speed and agility and not getting fatigued in the second half. So that's that's my take on it um it's not it's not that complicated i mean there's so much research to support the performance and the injury reduction benefits um of strength training for for football players yeah i think i think the um i'm gonna talk a little bit about the professional world i think I think football is changing a lot like soccer is changing a lot and um it's become even like really physical um especially the NWSL is a really physical league. So if you, if you don't really have the, 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 the strength and, and the exposure to get to the demands of the game, you're in a really tough spot. So I think, for example, we had, we had players like, and I've, I've, I've coached players that didn't have the really foundational strength to actually even continue to work on some specific strength exercises. Right. So uh, at least you need at least the foundational strength the being able i i say and this is the professional world and i think that's you need to be able to lift at least 1.5 times your body weight in certain in certain exercise and i would say like uh squat or deadlift 
um, because um, you need to be able to apply force. You can't apply force if you're not strong enough. Um, in a, in a way of uh, prevention and just kind of the demands of the game. So if you have, if you're a midfielder and you're really not build the, build the strength in terms of your, your adductors, right? Your adductors, um, because you're changing direction how many times in a game, if you're a, a winger, if you're outside, outside forward, um, and you, I don't know how many meters of high speed running you're doing in a game and you don't have the hamstring resiliency and strength, and, and not even strength, but hamstring, like strength endurance to be able to go back and forth. Um, and that's how, how you see a lot of in the football world with, with the amount of hamstring injuries, right? So I think, I think strength is extremely important um, on that, those specific things. And, and anti-rotation, stability, because when you decelerate, if you don't have control of that eccentric force, and that's where... You, you need to train the eccentric part in your weight room, you know, um, that really correlates with the game in terms of deceleration to change direction. Um, you need upper body strength because you need to be able to hold the ball. And, um, and that's uh, all those things really build resiliency. I think that's huge. And not only in the professional world, I think with youth and with the female athletes with ACL injuries and um, <clears throat> it all start early. And I don't think it's, um, you you should be people are like oh why are youth like working out in gyms and 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 getting stronger, and um, <clears throat> I think it's extremely important for the youth. Like I wouldn't say like five, six, seven year olds, but um, depending on the kid, like if they're 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 playing so much all year round, they need to start being able to coordinate their the everything, and that starts in the weight room. It can be body weight. Uh, just to create that stability. And then from there, you can kind of build up from there. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that's that's really important. That's, to me, almost more important than moving weights. Like, we lose with these kids in this specific generation so much of the proprioception and the main movements. Like, where else are they going to learn the main movements? The beauty of football is anybody can go out in the street and start playing. That's what all of us did for the most part. I mean, nobody taught us how to run. Nobody taught us how to kick. We just... We learned those things before we went into a club or got ourselves into a team or found a skills coach or whatever. And that's the beauty of the game. But by that being, you know, with the whole debate about early specialization, a lot of people or a lot of young kids, sorry, in this generation, don't go outside, don't climb trees, don't have upper body strength, don't have good posture, don't run around, don't learn how to run from, you know, <laughs> falling over and having injuries and the basic things that people do outside. So how are we going to learn and teach athletes these things, if not in the weight room. So we teach them these movements. We teach them how to be strong and dominant in these movements, right? Like I have 25-year-olds coming in who can't even hinge their hips back into a deadlift. And it takes like literal weeks to teach them how to get into a hinge because it's uncomfortable. They have tight hamstrings. They have low back pain, whatever it may be. Oh, and then we learn those movements and get strong and dominant in those movements. And all of a sudden they're more explosive in the acceleration. Just wanted to give you a couple of updates on our online community. So Evie's webinar that she did for us is available on our community. So you can go and check that out right now. We've also got a thread linked into this episode. So in the second part of the episode, we go into coach health. We've started a thread on the community discussing all elements of, uh, of coach health. And um, the girls are all on the community as well. So you can have a chat with them about certain things and expand on certain points they make in part two. 
There's also, as this goes out, we will be down at Colchester United. So the presentations from Perry and, and Kamal down at Colchester will be being uploaded onto the community so you can go and check them out. So if you're not able to join us at Colchester, you will be able to see the presentations available on the community. If you go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top. You can sign up for one free month on the community just by um, joining the community. That gives you one free month and then it is only £4.99 going forward after that. So it'd be great to have you on there. Joining the discussions on the forum, check out all the webinars, including EVs, and then also watch back the presentations from previous network meetings. Here's the rest of the episode with Evie. And the most simple... Um the most simple example I can give or anecdote I can give that I give to my players is that the primary movement we do in soccer, like Erica said, is not with the ball. It's sprinting. And when we're sprinting at any given time, it, you're standing on one leg and putting up to eight or sorry, up to five times body weight on one single leg. That's a lot of weight. And I'm not sure how we're preparing for that besides just sprinting. Uh, I would do it by lifting weights and by getting really strong and dominant lifting weights by having a you know, strong posterior chain having good mechanics and having a strong upper body where when you get into one-on-ones or when you get into, you know, sprint upper body positions, you're able to maintain those positions and postures with a strong entire body. It's a, it's a whole body power sport. Essentially. It's not just an endurance sport. And that's also the same with goalkeepers. I don't want to overlook keepers. Um, they have very different needs than field players do, but strength and conditioning is also very, very important for them, if not more so, I would say, for field players to have whole body strength and power. So that's how I would explain it. I, I love how you guys brought up the just the demands and being resilient to those. And in the youth world, in the pro world, game schedules are absolutely insane. <laughs> um, I mean, I know in, in the youth world here – there's kids in middle school in their growth spurts playing over a hundred games in a year. And I, I will say that the athletes who have been strength training or doing multiple sports or other hobbies outside of soccer, they're my best athletes. They're my fastest sprinters. They're the healthiest. And then I have kids coming in who have never worked on their coordination or they're not strong enough to handle the year round mess and the volume of games and they've had ankle sprains, knee tears. Um, they're not as fast as my other kids. So this is stuff that I see in the trenches at my facility on a daily basis. And it's, it's not even just experience based there. There's evidence behind all this. There's tons, tons of research that kids need to strength train to be able to handle the the demands of of playing a full soccer game and doing that times 100 reps every year totally agree and i think we forget sometimes or it's overlooked sometimes that part of our job as a strength coach is to keep these players healthy and sometimes that means doing very little i know that erica you guys' game schedule in the states is insane eb your in-season schedule in the nwsl is crazy our bundesliga schedule especially when it's mixed with uh, international games, qualifiers, tournaments into summer, we don't have any off seasons. Like the players never actually rest. They never actually have any time off. So when they're pretty much playing 11 months straight, if they're national team players plus league or first league, um, they're pretty tired most of the time. So when they come into me on Monday after having played on Sunday, especially if it's in English week where we play Wednesday and Sunday, 
I'm not going to get anything out of them. So sometimes they need my session to literally just be regeneration, lifting a little bit and then getting out. So sometimes the demands of the game are just that the players rest and there's no other time when they really get to do that than with me. Cause the head coach certainly isn't going to give their, them time off. The physio is going to give them a massage and tell them to go home or go to the head coach. So for me, it's always going to be the demands of the game and what the athlete needs in order to meet that. And we're supposed to provide them the resources. And sometimes that's just rest. I think that's great. I think where Evie talks about how the game is progressing, and I think that that applies to both the, the male and female game. Um, I think that underlines it for me, the, the, the requirement of these players on how robust, how mobile they need to be. And that, that comes from more than just playing games all the time. Um, it was a discussion I actually had with Simon Brundish on the, the podcast. He works with Derby County Ladies. We were talking about the World Cup. It was just after the female, uh, the female World Cup. And we were, we were talking about how I think the culture is, and this, is, this obviously doesn't re- apply to every male club, but I think the culture is very different in the female game in that these players that are coming through now, the, the likes of the USA team and the, the Lionesses that, were, that competed in the World Cup, that it's, it's sort of in the game already that they have this solid S&C, this big focus on strength and power, and the, the younger players will just pick that up. Whereas if you compare it to the men's game, there'll be a lot of clubs out there that will be very confused on what strength is and how it relates to the game. Going from the sort of mindset of, we don't need to lift weights to, to win games. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? And and it's a, I think it's a really fascinating debate and something that I think is going to progress over the next few years. Yeah, I think, I think it's all, if you, if you um, kind of, I think it's all cultural too, right? Because if you feel you see that there's some countries like Spain, like it's really all with the ball. Like I, I gave workshops in Spain. That's something that the coaches that came, they, that's the first thing they said is like, it's really hard, even our warm up to do anything else than just working with the ball. Um, so I think it's, it's more building the culture and, and making it as a norm, you know, it's kind of when you build a culture, you kind of want to, want to, um, have the players do it because that's the norm. That's the, what you want them to be expected to do that. Um, so I think it all comes, can you educate them? Can you educate coaches and can you make it as, as a norm? So it's not, it's the consistency of it and, and, and all that. So I think that's really important. You know, Evie, that's such an interesting point because um, this is a huge debate here in Germany as well, because this is really our first generation where we're trying really hard to work strength and conditioning into it, but it still hasn't picked up yet. And even at the national level, like we don't have an accrediting association here. Like we don't have, um, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's UKSCA as you guys' association or NSCA. Like we don't have a German equivalent of that. So it's just kind of all over the place. So our version of athletic trainers, it could be anybody who you know, has a physical therapy background and prefers BOSU balls and like palpation to somebody who does CrossFit and that could be your athletic trainer. So across the clubs, everybody's getting a different physical education essentially, or a different strength coaching experience. And at the national level, that doesn't really mix well when you get a bunch of players who all have different physical preparation strategies brought into one place and expect them to all play together and keep up. That doesn't work very well for us. But the nations who have strength and conditioning associations that are, um, the word is missing, accredited, and the education is very well uh, pushed for the coaches, I believe that they're doing better 
not just in their education, but then that education, of course, is coming out and how they coach athletes and how they regulate their federation. So that's going to be interesting for the next 10 years as well. That's a great point, actually. Like, especially me coming from Brazil, it's crazy how they benefit from just um, the education component. Just And, and going through the, the root of the problem is the coaches, right? And then how can you bring that that knowledge to coaches? And that's huge. Julia, you hit the nail. Um, it was really, really good point. But if we look at, for example, the Women's World Cup, because just like you said, the women's game is so much more athletic in the last 10 years. Oh, my God, completely different athletes. And all the difference is those top teams, all of those players are great athletes. So you look at Sweden. They have strength and conditioning. Norway, strength and conditioning. Uh, Netherlands, strength and conditioning, Australia, US, England, obviously, all strength and conditioning, Germany, eh, eh, Spain, eh, Brazil, eh. So all the countries that are kind of moderate, at least in this Women's World Cup, obviously, we can't blame everything on strength and conditioning. But the physical preparedness, uh, the education of the coaches, I believe that very strongly that that has something to do with it, because we all have to be on the same page right now. For the most part in Germany, all that we're on the same page with is we all want to win. We all want to make our federation more successful and we all want uh, our athletes to stay healthy and perform well. Uh, but we need to have essentially better, we need to come together on the methodology of how to do that and then be educated and really on the same page about what methods we're going to use to get there. And that's hard. Yeah, I think it, it all comes like with, especially with the Brazilian national team, uh, we have a great transconditioning coach at the, the national team level. We are starting to get really good coaches in the professional club level, but that's the, where the problem comes. I think it's not all the professional clubs that in Brazil that have that investment in coaching, education, and all that. Because the players that go to the World Cup, they come from those professional clubs, and they're with those professional clubs all, all, all year. So if those clubs don't provide that, then it's really hard for those strength coaches with the national teams to really do anything when and that those specific camps, they're so short. Um, so I think it all comes from the youth development, the professional clubs investment. So that way the national teams will kind of blend in with that. Yeah, Completely agree. That's coaching education, it's – I mean, you guys nailed it, and it's it's important how we deliver that education and just speaking the coach's language and not not necessarily saying, like, you need to do this, like, we need a strength train, you guys need to get your players in the gym. It's more like coming from a place of, of care and, hey, here's how this is going to help your players or – Here's how we can be efficient with you running practices. We can do some injury reduction within the warm-up. We can sprinkle this into a training session, get some high-speed running, and just we all we all know how to do this. And Ivy and Julia do such a great job, but it's just really coming from that place of of care and just the energy behind us talking about strength and conditioning because we're also passionate about that. And we have to let that passion show through. And that's when coaches and, and even parents in, in the youth strength and conditioning world, that's when they're, they're in and they're like, wow, like this stuff is important. And this strength coach cares about the performance of my players and their health. Yeah, it's something we've talked about before where you guys are mentioning culture 
I think that's the key to this in that we've brought up different nations, different leagues that are at, at different stages in a way, aren't they? And different beliefs of how they prepare. And the episode I did with Nick Grantham was titled Nudge the Culture Along. And I think that's basically what we're doing. If we compare, if we look at the female game and the, female, and the World Cup in particular, compare that to a good few years ago, the progression is massive, isn't it? And the, you look at the the standard of the game, but not only the standard of the game, the speed of the game and the, and the athletes that are playing now, it's moved forward so much. So it's really interesting to see how that will be affected in the, in the next few years. Yeah, I can't wait. Hopefully it means Germany makes it back to the Olympics, but I don't know. <laughs> we hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, like, like I said, Brazil is, it's really, really exciting because there's a lot of uh, professional clubs doing an amazing job in their development, the de- development of players and coaches there really good in what they do and uh slowly but surely i think we're we'll all get there i think that the the game worldwide especially on the, for females like it's it's getting really big and i'm really excited to see where where it all goes from here so i think the really big thing that has to happen in the next couple of years if i could just throw that out there is um i think especially us as strength coaches to realize um that we have to play well with the sports scientists. We have to play well with the, or, you know, data analysts and video analysts and all that stuff. We have to play well with the head coaches as well, but we also have to stick together. I mean, at the end of the day, strength coaches all should want the same thing from their athletes and we should be learning from each other and maximizing those things, working across lines, keeping everything bipartisan and just drop the ego and be like, Hey, my way might be best for this one athlete, but probably not for the other 25. Let me learn something else from somebody else who does this a different way and gets that result because I want a good result for my athlete. And I think that's going to be really important for progressing the game. We can talk about education all we want, but ultimately, I mean, education should be the easier part. It's the ego game (laughs) that tends to get a little bit difficult in footy. Um, Yeah. I don't know how you guys view that. Yeah, I think we can all learn something from each other and, and that's key. It's it's key to collaborate and you you can learn something from from anyone. So if you're working for a professional club, you might be able to learn from a youth coach and vice versa and maybe do some of the same things and try them with your athletes and and, and serve them. It's it's not really about like yeah, we can argue and we can hear each other out and as long as we're growing from those arguments and not trying to prove our point and that our philosophy is the best one in the world, but more so challenging people in a way, hey, what you did is interesting. Can you explain that and maybe I can get better and learn from that. Um so I think it's good that we we debate in 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 terms of we improve from it, but also it's good to collaborate and share our our ideas as strength and conditioning coaches, because at the end of the day, we're in this profession to get our athletes to perform better and to stay healthy and to hopefully be doing strength and conditioning even after when their sports career ends. So impacting their lives to some extent. So um, Julia, I love that you brought up the ego game because I don't think it's talked about a lot on podcasts. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with both of you. I think especially in our world, uh, strength conditioning world, it's so much ego. It's crazy. So that's why I think I'm personally, I, keep adding stuff and putting my stuff out there because it really benefits some coaches and 
and it opens a window of conversation. It opens like people saying, hey, I, I work at the, the youth level. I work at the, the professional level and I have this kind of problems. How do you apply what you just put in a video with my population? And then it opens a complete awesome conversation where you not only call it, collaborate with each other, but you also try to solve the puzzle that we all, that I, I always talk about. It's like all about solving the puzzle together because it's a different context, different population, um, and we all can learn from each other. And I think that's the the biggest thing in our world that it's and and as Erica said, it, we have to serve the athlete, and that's the ultimate goal. Um, is not is not the ego from strength conditioning coaches, in my in my opinion. So yeah, and it's it's so good to know that other strength coaches have your back. Like I know Ivy and Julia, like you guys are are good friends of mine, and it's been so great to to learn from you guys and just to know I had that support. Um, just because being being a strength coach, it can be a really stressful job, and it can it can definitely burn you out. And just to have the support on that end as well, and to just have this family with all other coaches, because all coaches are going through burnout and mental health problems, and, and you know whatever it may be. So I think that community is so important, and just feeling comfortable that I could like call someone up and just talk to them about life and not just training. That's essentially what I was touching on at the start of the episode when I was saying about you guys sharing. I know how open you are with all your work, and and I can only imagine the discussions that go on sort of off social media, behind the scenes when you're bringing up issues and problems. And that is so important for coaches, isn't it, to realise that some of the struggles that they're going through they're, they're completely normal. Everyone's got issues at, at their club or the athletes they're working with, and it's. They're all challenges. This is what we use our network meetings for. We open up these discussions and it's just good to get people talking because I think people think sometimes from the outside looking in that teams will be like doing well in the league or players are doing well and they think that there's no issues, no challenges. And when you're real and, you, and like you said, when you drop that ego and you're able to talk to people, then you realise there are still challenges, but you can, you can pick up ways that they're overcoming it and relate it to your practice. Absolutely. We do this in a community. I mean, none of us functions alone. Like a strength coach doesn't coach the entire team. We work in part of a team. So it's important to keep that up. And I think, um, I wish somebody had told me how lonely it would be (laughs) before I got into this. Obviously all three of us were uh, athletes and played to, you know, differently high levels. I stopped at college and the girls I know played longer than that, but, um, you know, we've always been part of a team. And so I wish somebody had told me that it would be so lonely to kind of be shoved into the corner of the weight room for a while while I was working in strength and conditioning solely and that I needed to build a team again because we're always supposed to be working in teams and um, to have mutual vision and to sometimes know when to shut off and to get out of the gym and to learn from other things outside of sport and remember that the world is really, really big and there's lots of things to learn. And it's not just about, like I said, it's not just about sports. It's about the people and the athletes and how much you can learn from stepping out of the weight room every once in a while to clear your head. Yeah. There's a lot that I wish people had told us beforehand. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge point. And it kind of goes back to the, the burnout and the, the mental health that we always talk about the, the, the athletes and, and the players, but we forget about mental health with coaches. And I think that's, 
that's huge. I don't know how many young coaches that I know, myself included, that been through burndown. And I'm only 28 years old, and I'm on this industry for five, six years, so I'm pretty young. And and it's like um, we don't talk about it, and we we think it's we think it's uh, showing too much. Uh, we're too vulnerable. I don't know. Is but it's really important. Like Julie said, we need to build a like. We talked about this at Altus this week too, because I I kind of ask those coaches the question because they've they been in the business for like 20 years 30 years and they all been through burnout but it's all about when to, when to shut off like they one of them said uh Stu McMillan said well I no, I don't talk to anybody on Sundays I just shut everything off like and it's important and also building a really strong um connection with your mentors because those are the, the the people that are really going to be there for you if if they like if my mentors don't hear back from me for a long time, they will reach out to me and, and ask me if I'm okay because they know that I'm always constantly talking to them. So building that connection where those mentors can guide you through the way, don't let you go through that black hole, and also like really make sure they they guide you through your decisions as a coach, especially if you're young and 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 get and kind of tell you that it's okay and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to figure it out. But um, yeah, I think mental health for coaches, I think that's huge. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And Ivy, I like that you brought up just having your mentors because sometimes when, when you're going through burnout and anxiety, it's, you lose yourself and you need those people to remind you who you are and, and why you're, you're doing what you're doing. Um, and, and also it, it does take a lot of self-awareness too. And just knowing when you are pushing yourself so hard, uh, whether that's, you know, maybe your sleep is, is lacking or your, your mood is changing or you, your, your relationships aren't as good, um, whatever it may be, just knowing when all those buckets are just getting emptied and, and when you need to take a step back and take some time for yourself because we have jobs where we have to be, we have to be strong. We have to be role models, but we're also serving so many people, whether that's our athletes or management or coaches or parents. And it's like, at the end of the day, like I'm only one person, like, and, and you're serving all these people and you have to take care of yourself and it's really easy to lose that. So absolutely having the mentors and the community and know, knowing yourself and, and being self-aware of, of what you need and how to fill your cup. That's so interesting. Um, I know we've all watched this having done the like practicum phases, the internships and strength and conditioning, especially in football is so, so hard to get into in the first place. <laughs> in Germany, the translation is people call it modern prostitution because it feels like you're selling yourself off for very, very little for a very long time in order to get to the place you want to be at. Everybody's worked for free for, for many years and still continues to do so. We put in a lot of money and time into this thing. So it's kind of hard to say, but I can't recommend enough to even young coaches, like figure out what your values are early, your why, yes, but also your boundaries. Like where is your stopping line? Where's the threshold between I can't do this anymore and um, you know, I can continue doing this well because I used to tell myself, um, you know, realizing that yes, it's a service profession, but it's essentially a caring profession. Like we're giving a lot of stuff out to athletes 
every single day, like Erica was saying. And I used to think I was super valiant and say, oh, but they're giving me so much back. Like, this is so fulfilling to me, et cetera. And it is fulfilling to me, but not completely fulfilling because ultimately it takes so much out of me that I also have to fill that up. And my buckets were just getting empty, right? Like family time, socializing, sleep, uh, eating, and it helps to have mentors. It helps to have somebody you can go to always and talk to confidentially, whether that's your therapist. Can't, everybody needs therapy. Can't recommend that enough. Um, has nothing to do with mental illness, just has to do with keeping yourself in check and having accountability. To have somebody to keep you accountable, yes, mentors and then teammates and then setting those boundaries. Like my phone goes on airplane mode at nine o'clock at night and it'll come back on at seven o'clock the next morning. And that is what it is. People know how to get a hold of me in an emergency. But if my athletes contact me, I'll get back to them in the morning. And I know that that's just my time when my brain can shut down. And that has saved me um, from a lot because we tend to, like I said, be in that helping profession where we have to be on all the time and energized all the time and solving these puzzles all of the time. And that's just simply not the case. And then have those friends who will pull you out of the holes. Erica's pulled me out of holes where she doesn't hear from me for 24 hours and just hits me up like, hey, homie. You good? Just checking on you. So those friends are invaluable. I fully agree. I think we get so absorbed in our profession, don't we, and the work that we do, which is great. And I'm, I'm sure you can all say that you, you love what you do. But at the same time, it takes up so much of our, our energy. And we do have to be so aware of this. And I presented this week actually um, on something called the stress bucket. I'm sure you guys have heard of it where there's a lot of things going into your bucket. Like you've just referenced it. Um, then Julia, loads of things going into your bucket, but you have to have things coming out to keep the, the water, the, the analogy of the water level. If not, you get to overflow. When you get to overflow, that causes things like depression. It can cause mental health issues. It can cause fatigue, possibly injury. There's loads of things that you can reach with that, isn't it? So I think time away, where, you, where you're talking about time away from S&C, that's absolutely valuable and it's crucial for coaches to have something that they, they, they do or they enjoy that isn't fully engaged in our practice. I think some of the things that you, you've mentioned there about therapy, people, I think there's, there's a real stigma, isn't there, about seeing therapists and that, you, that when you do it that you're not well. Like That's not true at all. Like Everyone needs therapy. I've personally had it and it's something that I've benefited from massively I think everyone needs it and some of the practical points that you've talked about there Julia with you turning your phone off and putting it on airplane mode I do that um, I think that's crucial as well if we're, if we're available all the time our jobs aren't 24-7 they're only 24-7 if we make them 24-7 so we're in control of that aren't we and I'm, I'll open it up to you guys again because I think some of this conversation is absolutely vital yeah, I think, Julie, I love that you you mentioned boundaries. Like, that's my new favorite word for 2020 this year. <laughs> um, but I love just talk, turning the phone off at a certain hour, um, not feeling like, like you always have to get back to people within 10 seconds. Um, the, good, the good thing about all of this is we have to remember that we are in control. So if you don't want to respond to thousand emails or text messages you don't have to and you set those boundaries and having those boundaries really sets you free and it, it just really protects your energy um and and that's that's really key is just protecting your energy and your 
your motivation. So, um, yeah, boundaries is, is my new favorite word this year. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And I think it all, and, and it's bound, you said it all, it's all about the boundaries, right? So, um, I, I started meditating, like I started doing, and it's, it's hard. Meditating is freaking hard because you need to learn how to turn everything off, you know, and, and be present. I think mindfulness is the, the world, the word that I'm kind of consistently trying to, to reach and just being there in the moment. And even myself, like I tend to really, people tend to lose me really fast because my mind always goes to all those different places. And 90% of the time it goes to work. And it goes to what the things that I need to get done at work. Um, my partner, my partner says all the time that she gets so mad because sometimes I, I just don't like it, I go to another lot of land. And it's it's all about um, you need to re- reconnect yourself. You need to connect yourself to your family, to your friends, and and knowing that this job, it's you know, it's like when you say like soccer is not the the big picture, right? There's so much to to life. And that's the same thing with our jobs. There's so much to life and so much that we need to be consistently being reminded of uh, family and friends and and dedicating that time for them. So I think that's really important. Yeah, 100%. And like way to drag all of us within an inch of our lives. If you like coming for me, girl, talking about like, you have to stay present, like, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. Because we are all sold off into this uh, this SNC gig because it's so important to us and me working in a psychology role a lot as well. It's really important for me to do that. And I was in a um, a consultation with an athlete who was struggling with deciding on a marketing contract. Let's put it that way. And the sponsor or um, advertisers wanted something very specific. And she said, I don't know if I can do it. It would cost me. I feel like it would cost me a lot. And we, we discussed, you know, what do you feel like it's going to cost you? Cause they're going to pay you a lot of money for this. So what's it going to cost you? Cause there's always a give and a take, right? She's like, I feel like it's going to cost me something that I can't really put my name on. And as she was thinking about it, we realized that it was a sacrifice of values essentially. And that that was like selling off her soul to her in a way. And that's why it was so hard for her to decide yes or no. Yes for the money, but no, because it was like selling off your soul. And when we talk about boundaries, that really clicks into gear for me. It was like, hmm, yes, this is all consuming. Yes, my values align so well with strength and conditioning and it's my, I'm passionate about it. And I love helping athletes as a, you know, psychophysiologist in, in my role. But I also am not 100% S&C and I also have values and I can't sell my soul off to this industry that doesn't care about us. Like they don't care. It's not built for individuals, just like it's not built for individual athletes. It's built for money and performance. And that's what football is like it's ultimately a statistics game. It's a numbers game. It's a money game. That is what it is. It doesn't care about the individuals. Athletes are commoditized all the time. And so are we. And so, yes, we're built, we're bought into it for the athletes, but we can't sell off our souls into this machine because it doesn't help anybody. So if we're healthy, then we can help athletes be healthy. And we have to draw a boundary line and stay like committed to that. And over the long term, that boundary being really strong, really, really, really helps. Yeah, Julia, I, I, I love that. And it, it's it, I think people need to realize that, yes, we, we all are so incredibly passionate about our jobs and we're all so blessed to do what we do every day, every year. Um, but with, with anything that you do over and over and over again, 
you, you eventually need to take a step back because you are a layered human being. You're multidimensional. You have other hobbies, you have other passions. And that's what life is about too, is enjoying everything, enjoying the richness of it. And, um, I mean, you know, we could be in any industry, we could all be like rappers or DJs. And if we're doing the same thing every day, like, yeah, we're going to get burned out. They, they get burned out all the time. I know so many rappers who suffer from depression and anxiety because they do the same thing over and over again and they don't take a step back. So it, right. it, it the could, body is not built for being repetitive. Like think about repetitive motion industries, rep- or, uh, injuries, Re- repetition hurts. It hurts exactly. your brain and it hurts your body. Exactly. And like, you can, you can absolutely love what you do, it, but there needs to come a time when you, you step out of it. And again, just coming back to your mentors calling you out on it, your friends, um, and knowing yourself, it, it goes a long way. Yeah, I think something that, um, uh, one of the coaches at Altus was talking about this is, uh, too. It's like the same way we paradise training. We need to paradise our 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 life as coaches too. So like microcycle, the macrocycle. Love that. You know, because it's it's like yeah, Sundays are the days that I'm gonna shut off, right? What about the mac like the the mac, like microcycle, like the big one? So I'm gonna take ten days during the year that I'm gonna disappear and I'm gonna make like I'm gonna go for a travel with the family and stuff. So I thought that was really cool. Just. Same prioritization, if you want to be specific. We have to practice what we preach, right, everyone? <laughs> exactly, right. 100% with it. I would also throw out, like, having mentors in different areas and colleagues in different areas. I know we kind of talked about this, but some of my mentors are, like, in the academic world and completely other territories than I am. Like I'm in the sciences and I have people uh, that I go to in the arts and the social sciences and the fine arts. I mean, one of my um, mentors is a musician and just like have conversations with them that are intense and have them hold me accountable and have other ways of seeing things, people who are in business, uh, people who are in in other high performance fields or non-high performance fields, just people you respect. Like having those colleagues and mentors can really change how we look at things and just remind us like we live in this machine again and we don't have to. And there's so much more outside of that that even I find talking to them is really helpful for me because there's always a new way of seeing something. Um, And to me, it's almost like taking a nap or having meditated after coming out with intense conversations with people like that. So we need to not limit ourselves to just being stuck in there. That's such a good point. Surrounding yourself with people in other fields. Um, or even just your friends. I, I know a lot of my friends are creatives, like photographers or, or um, artists. I have a lot of friends who are nurses. So it, it's nice to hear about what they're doing um, and to learn f- learn from them, uh, whether that's how to have more empathy or how to create a project or just new skills, just talking like awesome people. It's, it's the best. Well, and like Erica said so perfectly, repetition kills. <laughs> So essentially, and so we're not supposed to be doing, I mean, we're supposed to be being innovative, right? Because this doing the same thing over and over and over only works for so long. So if we can find new ways of doing things, trying out new things, coming up with new ideas, that creativity, that innovation that doesn't really come from just listening to the same thing and doing the same thing over and over again, man, that can really change things. I've had some of my best coaching ideas and best, best like moments where I'm like, oh, this cue is exactly what that athlete needs by talking to somebody who works in like the Navy, <laughs> like 
we just, we need other people, but we need to make sure that we're not just in the same bubble because we all tend to feed each other the same stuff and that doesn't help. When I was planning this podcast, I knew this was going to be the section that was going to be most beneficial. And I was, I didn't want to interrupt because I think the conversation is, uh, there were so many practical points that coaches could take away from that segment. Um, and I think it's an area that we still isn't talked about enough. And I think we fall into the trap of constantly chasing and doing more and not realising that we can take that step back. And Evie, I love that in terms of the, the micro and macro cycle of essentially your life, like looking at it and planning out the week, but also planning out the year or months or, or a few years. I think that's essential that time can just fly by, can't it, so quickly. And before we know it, we've, we've gone six, seven, eight, nine months and we've not had any, any break or any time off. And we're getting to that point of burnout because of course we are like we've worked so hard for so long and if your players were doing that you'd be acting on it and we need to do it for ourselves as well don't we 100 percent. i think that's really important not not a lot uh people talk about it and i think that's we need to address it so it's really good i'm just wary that we're getting to sort of a, a joe rogan length episode here now so i'm gonna i'm gonna sort of <laughs> And I, we could probably go on this all day and it, it could turn into a good few hours, but I think there's definitely room for a part two because there's so, there's so many other things that we could go into and stuff that I had down that we've not touched on yet. But just to tie in with what we've been talking about there in terms of community, in terms of learning from other people, um, in terms of mentors, I'm going to, ask, I'm going to put a question to you all now. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of a... Um, a bit of a story behind this. So you're going to have four people around for dinner. That's not including yourselves. You can pick two coaches and two people that aren't involved in sports. So that can be any two other people that you want to learn from. Who would it be? So we, uh, Erica, even let's start with yourself. So two coaches that you'd want round for dinner. You want to pick the brains. You want to learn as much as possible that you can from them. And then two other people that aren't involved in sport that you that you want to learn from. Oh gosh, <laughs> that's such that's a hard question. Um, I'm dropping that on you, by the way. This this wasn't any. I didn't give any hint that we were going to do this, but I'm going to drop it on you and see what you can come up with. Right. Um. Gosh, for coaches, I I would say Dave Tenney. So he's a sports scientist uh, for the the Magic. He used to be with the Seattle Sounders, and um, he's someone I've always looked up to in the industry, and someone who I feel has led the the field in sports science and um, load monitoring. Um, also, really humble guy. Really really insightful and, and amazing to talk to. So definitely Dave, Dave Tenney and um, so Sabrina, the, the coach of the Netherlands women's national team, just to talk to her about how she's grown that program um, just with their amazing success in the world cup and in the, the Euro and preparing for the next Euro. And it's always nice to learn uh, from Dutch coaches just because I'm Dutch myself. <laughs> So um, those two for coaches, um, non-coaches, well, I'm going to go off the beaten path again. Um, I'm really into the fashion industry, so I'm going, going to say uh, supermodel Gigi Hadid just because 
I just love the way she carries herself and just how humble she is as well. And um, she's also dealt with her fair share of mental health in a completely different industry, but a completely superficial industry. So it'd be really cool to pick her brain on that. Um, and then another one, hmm, gosh, it's so hard because I feel I should be naming like these like amazing figures in like history or something. <laughs> um, I'm not going to, I'm going to say Johnny Depp just cause I, I like his acting. <laughs> Love it. And what about you, EB? Ooh, that's a hard question, Ben. Put us under the bus here. Um, <laughs> let's see. I think as a coach, I think uh, Brett Bartholomew. I think it's uh, a huge one that I would love to pick his brain just just because of that aspect that we don't talk too much about is just the art of coaching and that kind of like the mental health and all that. I think that's huge, especially for me as a young coach. Um, that's something like so big. Um Whew, another coach, I, I would say, oh, man, that is so hard because I, I have so much people that I look up to. Um, I think if I, I, I know I had the, the, the chance that I learned a lot from Dan Pfaff this past week, but I wish I had more time to kind of sit down with him because he's so experienced and so like so much knowledge and um, and I wish I had more time doing because I had so many, so many questions. I wrote down all those questions, but it's so hard to actually have the time to go through. So I think he would be another person, um, that I would, uh, love to sit down and, and talk to. Um, now if they're not, not a coach, oh my gosh, that's really hard. That's really hard. I think I, uh, I don't know if I could name right from the like right now, like somebody that I would I would pick their brains, but it would be somebody that first would be somebody with uh, a really hard journey, you know, in terms of like dealing with all the different kinds of adversities to become what they become. Um, that that would be huge. I think I would say even like I coach her, but like Marta, I want to sit down with her like and have really big time to go deep on, on the questions and all this stuff that she had to go through coming from where she came from, uh, to get to where she, she's here right now. Um, and again, it's, it's funny cause I coach her all every day, but it's like, if I could have, you know, a time that I could have dinner and like, just get all those, um, answers to those questions and, and, and that would be huge. Um, and I think the other person would be John Mayer, just because um, <laughs> I love John Mayer. I have <laughs> I have a, a extreme passion with his music, so that would be a, a fun one. But yeah, that's it. I think we'll give you that, Evie. We'll give you that, <laughs> Julia. <laughs> what about you? Oh my goodness, I have to second Evie on that one with Mata because I really wish that I could just take the, the top 10 footballers, women's footballers for the last 20 years and sit down with them at dinner and be like, let me just ask you something. <laughs> like, um, because they're truly exceptional human beings. And I think we have so much to learn from them that we never really get a chance to because they, they talk on the pitch as it should be. Um, man, Ben, way to end. Um, all right, so I'm gonna have to say Fergus Connolly, uh, he's a sports scientist, works primarily in American football, but um, 
just exceptional with how he works with data um, quantitatively and qualitatively and how he talks about sports science should really be a holistic practice that we also have to look at psychological data uh, and that it's not just about numbers. Again, there's always athletes behind the numbers and how to make teams win from that perspective. Um, Marsha McDermott was the, wow, aging myself, WUSA um, Founders Cup 2 championship coach of the Carolina Courage, the, the OG way back in the day with the original team. And um, she is still fantastic to this day, um, but she is one of those people who taught me to look outside the box, uh, get outside sport, learn from outside of sport, and then how to motivate athletes, um, build a team of completely different people, bring them together, motivate them, and how to speak to individuals and treat people like they matter. And that's, uh, I think, a very, very important thing for a coach to have and learn. Everybody has different ways of doing that, but hers was quite unique. I'd have, have to say respect that a lot. Um, Barack Obama, to me, has always been fascinating because he has had quite a time working across uh, party lines and not so easy situations. And I could learn quite a lot about crisis management and, uh, and teamwork from him and how to stay calm under pressure. And I just find him fascinating because he's very cerebral as am I. And you just always kind of see the gears in his brain turning and yet he somehow manages to make complicated stuff simple. And um, a fourth one is someone I know. Uh, his name is Johannes Sloscheid. He's a theologian here in Germany, and he has an exceptional art of asking really good questions. And I think that's really important for coaches to learn as well. So uh, yeah, that's where I am. Full tables, guys. I would love to invite all of you guys to my table as well, if that's possible, Ben. I don't know <laughs> what the max capacity is. Well, we might have to get some extra chairs, but I didn't. I didn't make the point before that you couldn't pick yourselves. But obviously, you guys, I'm pretty sure, would be inviting each other around to open up plenty of discussions, like like we have done in this. But I think I wanted to throw that at you just because it's really interesting to hear from. Uh, there's obviously loads of coaches that you you'll be learning from, and and that will be mentors mentors of yours. And when you narrow it down to two, it's really tough, isn't it? To to decide, and I completely understand that. But then, out of out of sport, away from sport, it's a really interesting thing. And I, I actually heard this asked on another podcast, and I thought it was a really good question because it it makes you sort of open your mind up a little bit more to where you can learn from, and not just in terms of what that person's doing, but just who that person is and and what they've been through. And that's obviously what you guys have talked about there, just getting into someone's challenges and how they've got around things and, and how they've progressed through their lives. So I think it's really interesting and fascinating, like delving into those answers and the people that you guys have talked about there. Again, I think those external influence are massively important. So I think everybody should consider who their mentors, whether near or far are and uh, bring some diversity into the mix because there are certainly other voices that we don't hear on a daily basis and need to make a point of hearing uh, and drop the ego at the door, please. Yes, no egos. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate all of your time today. I know 
Um, Julia, it's, it's Saturday night. That's right, isn't it? Over there, you get, you're on the same sort of time as me and, and Evie, Erica. You're up. You're all Saturday afternoon. Is that correct? Yep. So I really yeah. appreciate you all giving up your time. Um, I think some of the things we've been through in the podcast have been amazing. I think there's so much detail in there from your experiences, and, and please keep sharing everything that you're doing and, and being so open with you with your practice because I really do appreciate everything that you're doing and hope many people go and check it out. Um, but in terms of this, this podcast, I think there's so much detail in there. All the stuff on coach health, I think is absolutely crucial for people to listen to. Um, and that's without mentioning all the actual technical stuff that we went into before as well. So I hope everyone's enjoyed the episode and thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks so, so much, much, Ben. So much, Ben. Awesome thank, you. thank you. Guys, reach out to us. We're always happy to have conversations wherever. Yeah, well, I think there's definitely scope for a part two. And that's that's got to be in the pipeline at some at some point. Just to finish us off, um, starting with yourself, Erica, just, just want to mention if anyone's got any questions or they want to get in touch, where's the best place to do it? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to find me is on Twitter at fit soccer queen very easy to remember so reach out if, if you have any questions or just want to talk about life awesome and then julia what about yourself find me uh, at white lion all over and on twitter at the julia lion real and then evie and me same thing at eve evie casa grand <laughs> yeah, at Evie Casa Grande on Twitter. Ivi um, Casa Grande, as I say. <laughs> Not Casa Grande. <laughs> you should hear how Martha says it. It's so much fun. I know, right, right. Casa Grande. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'll obviously, post all your handles, your Twitter handles, on the show notes as well. So, if anyone's unsure, you can go and check those out too. But. Yeah, massive thank you for your time and uh, I'll look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Ben, thank, thank you. you. Big thank you to Evie, Erica and Julia for coming on the podcast. It was great to speak to them. I've obviously spoken to Evie and Erica before, but it was great to have Julia on and I knew they would deliver in terms of content. I was going to split this show up into two parts, but I thought I'd leave it out there. I know it's a very long podcast, but I think the content that is in there is absolutely crucial for you to listen to, um, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Some of my biggest takeaways were where they were talking about female players overthinking data points, but I think that also refers to different players as well. I think male players are, are very similar with that as well. It depends on the person. The views on performance testing, how we should be constantly testing, not just monitoring at certain points of the year. And then some of the practical tips for coach health. We spoke about uh, time away from SNC, having other things you enjoy, um, not spending too much time on your phone, all that sort of stuff. I think that is crucial and it don't it doesn't get talked about enough. So I think the discussion on, on coach health is, is vital and it's something that we need to expand on. I mentioned in the middle of the episode, we have put a thread on our community now to talk about coach health. So if you do want to come and join us, head over to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up for your free month. You can come and join in the discussion. And also, we've had a few recommendations recently from people, from different people on podcast guests, and we are chasing those up. So the next few episodes will be some of those recommendations. So a massive thank you to everyone that's reached out and recommended any guests. 
And if you do think of anyone or, or hear of anyone you want to hear on the show, please let us know and I'll do my best to get them on. I mentioned at the start of the episode we are running the competition, so the giveaway of the ebook. So if you could head over to iTunes if you haven't done so already, leave us a five star review, and we will be drawing out the winner of the giveaway of our Youth Soccer Strength ebook in next week's show, so episode 64. So you have got up until the 26th of Feb to do that, um, but to give yourself the chance of winning a free copy of our ebook. Head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Big thank you for listening and thank you for staying with us for the full time on this podcast. It is a long one. It's the longest one so far, but it was great to have the girls on and go through all the information that we did. Hope you enjoy the episode and I'll see you next week.